Good morning, church. My name is Ray Brandon, the pastor for preaching here at Northbridge. Before we get into God's word, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Our great God and heavenly Father, we come before you. And we understand this morning that our own sin speaks deep into our heart in that we are self-deceived. We are far too greatly concerned for ourselves. We fear what others think and have little fear of God. Because of this, our self-image is inflated in our own eyes. And because of this, we have blind spots that we cannot see. And they're not the blind spots that are that narrow impediment in vision in our side view mirrors. They are a windshield that is blacked out and we cannot see ahead. So much so that we think we are acting wisely and that we are doing good, but yet we are continuing to stir up trouble, to set ourselves in a way that is not good. And so we are thankful that you come and you rescue us by your mercy. It is your steadfast love that comes to us, um, this love that is greater than we can know. And so we pray that in these next few moments, we will understand the extent, the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of your steadfast love to us how faithful you are to your own character and to your own goodness, that you judge rightly and that your righteousness is immovable, that your judgments are mysterious and true. And you act justly towards all in creation, not just humanity but all creation, so much so that the rocks themselves cry out to you for your kindness, your mercy, your grace, and your justice. And so we come here to open your word, to worship you, and in this way to call all the children of Adam to take refuge in you, for there's refuge in no other place, to sit at the king's table and to feast in the king's house, to have bread and wine offered from the king himself. And in this, you delight. You delight to see your children around the table of your blessedness. And you delight to hear the praise of your children whose thanksgiving is upon their lips. And it is in your house that we see your light and all things become clear for you are the light in the life of humanity. So we ask that this morning we would continue in your steadfast love, that we would do right because you are right and you have made us upright for we know there is no good in us but you have set us free. And so let not those that are your enemies, let them not prevail. 
for we trust that you are the king of righteousness. You're the one that calls all to take refuge. And those that do not, your wrath will be upon them. And you will conquer. You're the king. And we give you praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 36. Psalm 36. This is the last message that we have in this particular book of the Psalms. So the Psalms are divided into five parts. And so this is the first book. And I forget how many messages that we've had in this particular book of the Psalms. And we'll move um, in two weeks on to the next book, the second book in the Psalms. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit, Matt. We'll keep coming back to the structure of the Psalms because there is a structure and there is a movement of these songs. And this is an amazing, amazing book in, inside the Bible. And so I want you to kind of warm up your hands, warm up the pages of your Bible because we're going to go to a few places today. So I want to see you turning those, turning those pages and uh, or maybe, maybe you're scrolling or flipping, but I do think it's valuable um, to have a paper copy, this kind of technology, um, at least somewhere in your week to use this kind of um, technology in your reading of God's word. Um, empirical science shows us that this technology affects us in ways that electronic technology does not. And uh, so the reading of scripture um, printed on the page um, is helpful in certain ways um, that electronic is not. And you can, um, you know, you can, you can mark things up and use cross-references and things like that. That's extremely helpful in your own study of God's word. So we're going to turn to a few places because I want you to see this morning, too, how, how the Psalms are a, a, a little Bible and how the gospel can be preached, is preached, in every psalm, in every psalm. Now, now there's some psalms, it's, so this section is, is um, it's an interesting section because we are in, in Psalm 36, or th- Psalm 37 is the middle, is that there, there are Psalm 34 through 37 are psalms of the innocent suffering. The innocent suffering. How many of you have suffered something that you did not do, but you suffered for? Anybody in a car accident where somebody hit you? Anybody bump you and you spill something? Anything? You know, there's small ways, but probably all of our hands could go up and we'd say, yes, at some point in my life, I have felt the effects of a sin-cursed world, right? Things in our world go from disorder to order, right? Just naturally. Never. Some of you make your living on the fact that, no, it, op- it works in the opposite way. And you're just putting things back right. So these psalms are, are the innocent suffering. Then you, you, you look at the, the closing of this book. And there's a reason why there's this movement of songs in the closing of this book. Because you can look at, at chapter 41 in verse 13. It has the close of every Every one of the books, it says, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Um, that phrase, or a phrase similar to that, is at the close of every single one of the books at Psalms, of the Psalms. But the last four chapters in this book is how the guilty suffer. The guilty suffer. Now, I won't make you raise your hand. I'll just raise my hand for everyone. 
How many of you have suffered because of your own sin? That's right. All of us. And so yesterday, we met with the, the guys who are going to preach the series in Philippians. So there's about 10 of us. We have two high school students that are leading a, a guy's rafting trip um, in October. They're going to be teaching through the book of Philippians as well. So we all met downstairs, and, I, and I, we, were, we were talking about structure and different things when it came to the book of Philippians. And I asked them a question, and the question was this. In these, in these eight chapters, what's consistent? Well, you have several things. Two I've mentioned. One is sin. What does sin bring about? The second thing that's consistent, suffering, right? And in life, whether we are innocent or guilty, one of the things that we will do in life is we'll suffer. Okay, let's pray and go home. <laughs> Somebody said amen? Come on now. <laughs> oh, finally, a short sermon. <laughs> right? Well, that, those things are, those are consistent in those eight chapters. But you actually have to dig into these chapters. You're going to see a third thing that's consistent. And that is who God our Father is in the midst of our suffering and how he rescues us. What he does, innocent or guilty, you read through the Psalms, especially the Psalms that are called the imprecatory Psalms. What, what do those mean? Well, you know, those are the Psalms where David gets really angry, right? That's what it seems like. Um, his, his anger, I, I think, is righteous. And what he's doing is he, essentially he's calling down the, the judgment of God on his enemies. Like, should we, like, let's sing that Psalm this morning. Should we sing those Psalms? Well, actually, I think Jesus sang those Psalms. And we, the book of Psalms is so very interesting because it works on our emotions, which take up a lot of our time during the day, right? We're always in constant check of like, how am I doing? We just have this automatic, um, and we, we had a, a sermon series called Dashboard Emotional, right? We're always checking that dashboard of like, how am I doing? Even if you're not thinking about it, your, your, your body is responding to your internal weather and the external circumstances all the time. The, the book of Psalms teaches us how to make sure that we are judging correctly about the internal condition of our heart based on how things are going in our day. How does it do that? It's about the truth of God's word, right? So we get to the, these imprecatory Psalms and we say, well, man, how could anybody feel that way, right? We how could anybody be so like, I hope my enemies are just crushed under the foot of God? How could that be? How could that be? And you say, well, where's the goodness in that? Where's the gospel in that? Well, it's all tied up in understanding the character and nature of God. You won't understand your sin, and you won't understand your suffering unless you understand the, the nature of God himself, right? And so the Psalms are the songs of the king, Jesus is presented as the king. And in the Psalms, we have the pathway of the king. The pathway of the king was to be laid low for the sin of the world, to be exalted and to rule and to reign. 
And so both are true. And what we see that, this is the reason why I chose Psalm 36, is because the gospel is so clear. Here in this psalm, what's happening is we we are going to see the judgment of God, but we're going to see his great refuge. Right? There are, you do have real enemies. You do have real enemies. And so we just think about the world around us, right? Does the Bible tell us to pray for those that are in authority over us? Yes or no, church? Yes. Well, wait a minute. What if we don't like them? What if our emotions don't feel like praying for them? Should we pray for them, church? Yes. In that prayer, we should pray, what, for God's grace alone? Well, God's grace. But I think the Psalms teach us how to pray, how to sing. Oh, God, that your grace might be great. But also, and this is hard for us modern people, right? We're kind of grace alone people, in, not in the Reformation sense, but in the sense of like grace alone and that's all and, and, and chapter closed and that's it. Just grace. And we don't understand what the grace is for. The grace exists because there's judgment, right? There's judgment before, and then there's grace, and those that do not respond, there's still judgment. If there isn't the judgment of God, then there is no justice that exists in the cosmos. And what a horrible world to live in where evil prevails. You cannot have justice without the judgment of God. And we'd say, how many of you believe in justice? Oh, yes, justice is a good thing. Well, justice is predicated on the righteous judgment of God, that he judges justly. And if you live in a world without God, then you live in a world that is absolutely unjust because it's up to your judgment. Actually, it's willy-nilly. It's up to you or the person next to you. or Like, justice all of a sudden becomes this very subjective thing. But here what we see in the Bible is, Justice is righteous. And what does it say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all judged. Except for God's grace. Now let's read the psalm. Um, It's a beautiful psalm. It is a didactic lament. It's a lament meant to teach us. What are we going to learn? Well, we're going to learn about suffering. We're going to learn about sin. Most of all, we're going to learn about the great grace of God in this psalm. Let's read it. Follow along with me. Verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. 
For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we do see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of the arrogant come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. So here's how we're going to organize the psalm um, this morning. First, we see the character of mankind, the character of the sons of Adam. And then we see the character of the Lord, the Lord Yahweh. And then finally, we, we see the, the continuation of steadfast love. We see that there's a prayer at the end, the continuation of this steadfast love. So first, the character of mankind. It begins, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Um, this, this is an unusual phrase in the text. And what it's saying is that mankind has this inclination or attraction to that which is not good, is drawn to that. Right? What is it saying? It's that we're depraved, we're fallen, we're sinful. And so there's this inclination deep in our heart to do what? There is no fear of God before his eyes. It's not saying that that, that an individual doesn't acknowledge God. Now, there are other psalms that say the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But the temptation here is a temptation not just for unbelievers, but for Christians as well. And that's to live as practical atheists. To live like, oh, yes, there is a God. There's a God who exists. I know his word. But... And then you fill in the blank, but I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. The transgressions, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So what happens? He flatters himself in his own eyes. Where, where do we see this kind of language? Well, we see it actually quoted in Romans 3. So go over to the New Testament to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is describing the heart of the sons of Adam. It's describing your heart without Christ. Look at verse 8. Oh, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have, all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. Now, as it is written means what? What is, when, when the New Testament writer says, as it is written, what is he quoting? Old Testament, that's right. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world might be made accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What's the constant? 
The constant is the character of mankind in his sinfulness. What happens is he flatters himself in his own eyes. Like This is our condition. This is the struggle that iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Right? Now, this is not that it's not that his actions or her actions aren't seen. It's not talking about the external here, here when it says the words of his mouth, or sorry, the, um, that his iniquities uh, cannot be found out and hated. It's, not, it's, t- it's saying that it, this person doesn't see it. They're blinded. They're blinded to this very fact. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. So what happens when this is working in someone's heart? Right? They, they don't know. What did Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. For what? They're blind. They don't know what they're doing. They needed, humanity needs forgiveness. Why? Because we are so blind to sin But what comes out is the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceases to act wisely and do good. That word wisely is important. And do good. He ceases to know how to to rightly order living. Right? If there's anything that could be said is that you look at our society and our culture And and what we're doing with creation is we are disordering God's good creation. We are disordering the image of God in creation. Disordering the creation and disordering, we we have led to disordered ethics, right? And all kinds of things that are out of order. It is unwise to live this way. And then what happens? Not just unwise, but can any good come out of unwise living? The answer here is no. He ceased to act wisely and to do good. But rather he plots trouble while on his bed. Micah, um, Micah chapter 2 um, talks about the plotting of evil. It's action. It's thinking about that thing. He sets himself in a way that is not good, and he does not reject evil. Go back to Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And here the implication is not simply, not simply about doing evil, but rather the accepting of it. Look at verse 28. Of Romans 1, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, can you hear Psalm 36 in that? To live as a practical atheist, to claim Christianity and live as if God doesn't exist, is to not acknowledge God. God does what? Gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, 
They not only do that, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice there it says not only do they do them, but they give approval to practice them. There's, there's an, an approval to practice. I'd say that we could easily say that, that the approval here, it says, what, what comes, what, it comes last there in Romans. But if we looked at that passage and we say, well, how does sin actually develop, right? James tells us, where does sin begin? Psalm 36 says, where does sin begin? The, it actually, the approval begins on the front end, right? The approval begins on the front end, right? It also comes on the back end. Why? Because we want to give approval to those that are sinning because the person is doing what? They are sinning, but it begins with approval. What does Psalm 1 say that the man who is blessed does? He walks not what? In the counsel of the wicked. And you can see that negative decline, or in this case, in the blessed man, it is a staying away from the counsel of the wicked, nor standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seat of scoffer. But his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. And we said the man of Psalm 1 is Jesus, right? He's the only one who is not condemned by that law. But rather in Psalm 2, it is about taking refuge. So here we see very, very clearly from Scripture, what is our condition? We are hopeless. It's clear. Right? So, so here he's saying, I, I'm suffering because of the hopelessness of mankind. And David includes who in that as well? In himself. Himself. But then he turns to what? The, to the character of the Lord. Look at verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. He's going to repeat that phrase in verse 7. Also in verse 10. In, in verses 7 through 9. The steadfast love of the Lord is expanded upon, and it is the prayer in verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. It's the character of God. Here we see, um, we see four things in the, about the character of God. One, his steadfast love does what? Extends. It extends to where? The heavens. Now, where is that? Where is that? I'm sure there was a time in your life, you know, even as a young person that you began to think about what's the furthest thing that the, you know, I can imagine and what's the furthest thing that a telescope can imagine and what's the furthest thing beyond that and what's the furthest thing beyond that and before long you're just like, I don't know, right? Listen, do, do you believe that God's steadfast love extends to the heavens towards the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve from verses 1 through 4. What an amazing concept. You know, sometimes our love barely extends halfway across the room. This is a big room. We're not mostly in big rooms like this. Right? But God's love extends to the heavens. He says, your faithfulness to the clouds. Notice God is faithful to who? This is actually not God's faithfulness to you and to me, although that's true. 
but it's God's faithfulness to himself. In other words, God's character will never change. He is faithful to who he is. And when we say it that way and we understand it that way, what we're saying is that God's faithfulness is a constant. It will never stop. It's always the same. It's constant. So we tend to think of unchanging as static. No, it's actually powerful, extending to the heavens. It it, it is an amazing thing that this steadfast love will always be faithful. His faithfulness to the clouds. And he says this about his judgment. Look at that next is his judgment. You see how we have these two things coming together? Your righteousness, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. It's saying your righteousness is like the greatest mountain. Right? It's, it's huge. It, it's looming. You have you've probably been out west or um, to Alaska. Or you've been in mountainous regions. And what do you do all the time? Oh, wow. You're always looking up. And where is that mountain going? It's not going anywhere. It's there. It's looming. It's quality. Um, our... Um, one of the individuals that works for the church, um, Tyler Dravitz, he lives in Salt Lake City. So Tyler, if you're watching, hello. Um, He's an executive pastor out at Ridgeline Church. And if you've been to Salt Lake City, like you can be there, like you're in this basin. And, um, you know, one time he's, he's got a place and I was like, Tyler, you know, we were doing a Zoom meeting and I was like, the mountains behind you are amazing. And I hadn't been out there. I, I went out there with Roman. We went snowboarding. And I, I really, he's like, yeah. He's like, there's nowhere around that you, you can't buy real estate and have this incredible view. He's like, you're always looking up to this, it's just this awe. That's what the psalmist is saying. You look out and, and here is this, the mountain of God. Your righteousness is like this. But then how, are, how is God's judgments? What does he say? Your judgments are like the great deep. Right? What is he doing? What is, what's the psalmist doing as he, as, he, as he praises the character of God? God, your righteousness, the fact that you are right, that you do right, it's like a mountain and your judgment It goes like the great deep. It goes down to the great deep. And notice here that all creation says, man and beast you save, O Lord. Your righteousness and your judgments are so true. It's not just humanity that you care for, but it's all of creation. All of creation in the righteousness and the judgment of God is a precious thing, and he will do right. It begins with his faithful, steadfast love. But here we see together are his righteousness and his judgment. And and that is what we see in the character of God. We see now the psalmist is going and he's finding refuge in that character of God. He says, oh, precious is your steadfast love. Elohim, oh God. Notice that that's different. He uses your steadfast love, oh Lord, Yahweh, the personal name of God, your saving steadfast love. How precious is your steadfast love, 
O God of the cosmos, O God of the universe, O God who is sovereign, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Now here he's saying, he references all creation in verse 6. Now he's saying, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. This is an invitation to come into the king, to be saved by the king to all humanity. It's the call to salvation. And we see this back in the book of Ruth. We go back to, the, to Ruth chapter 2. Um, we studied this in, in our Bible study, in our small group. Ruth chapter 2, um, in verse 12. So Ruth chapter 2 and verse 12. I want you to see this connection. So Ruth is a Moabitess. She's what? An insider or an outsider, class? She's an outsider, right? She's in the, what Psalm 36 is referring to, the all of humanity, right? She's an outsider. Look at verse 12. It says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whom, or under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly of your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And then go to chapter 3 and verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone over after other young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen will know that you are a worthy woman. Why is she worthy? Why is Ruth the Moabitess? Why is she worthy? Was it anything that she did? No, it was the loving kindness of that man, her redeemer, Boaz. In doing what? Spreading out his wings, right? We see that same language here in the Psalms. She's redeemed. She's redeemed. And here, he says, this redemption goes to what? Simply insiders? No. Through the king, through his death and his burial and his resurrection, it goes to all. It goes to all. And then look what happens. Those that are redeemed, they do what? They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. We looked at this. You just can scan over the page to Psalm 33 and verse 7. It says, he gathers the waters of the sea in a heap. He puts the deep in a storehouse. You know, what is he doing um, with all that he has? He's lavishing like a good father. He's taking what he has and he's giving it to those that he delights they feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. In your light 
do we see light? That's an amazing phrase. It reminds us of John 8, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What happened before that? What happened before that is that there, was the, there were these religious leaders that trapped a woman in adultery, brought her to Jesus, and he said, hey, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. He, what he's saying here is when you come to me, what is it? You see clearly. You see clearly. When we trust in the, in the steadfast love of God, what happens? We see clearly. Let me ask you, what does that do to your emotion then? It is truth-driven emotion. Right? We need the good news and the gospel of Jesus in this psalm to see that he is the light of the world. And Jesus himself says what? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, the light of wisdom. So the Pharisees, they tried to test him again. And so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus, you're just talking about yourself. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but, but I and my Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of these two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Then they said to him, where is your Father? You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, hey, if you come to me, right? Psalm 2, if you kiss the Son, if you submit yourself to the Son, what? You know the Father. And here the, the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, you can't just testify about yourself. You've got to have two witnesses if you're claiming to be the one. And he said, I mean, he could have said, well, hey, hey guys, I'm God. But he doesn't. What does he do? He conforms to the law. And he says, I'm not the only witness. My father testifies of who I am. And what was their problem? What was the, what was the problem that the Pharisees had that they were running around trying to do all of this to Jesus, what was the problem? The problem was that there was no fear of God before their eyes. Right? It was the deceit in their own heart. And so here he prays, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Those who know you. You see, it's the heart of the Savior. This is, the, this is where we see the heart of the Savior for the world. Does, does God love all humanity? The answer is yes. Will God judge all humanity? The answer is yes. It's both is true. Both is true. God will judge all humanity. But there is a refuge from the judgment of God that can only be found in King Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. And the issue is, have you taken refuge in Jesus? Have you taken refuge in Jesus? So when we pray, how should we pray? God, save all. 
And then we ought to pray, God, judge all. Why? Because your righteousness is like the mountains and your judgment goes to the deep. You will not do wrong. And so we pray both because our hope and our stay is in who? Jesus and him alone. So we pray, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of the arrogant come to me and the hand of the wicked drive me away. There there the evildoers lie fallen. So what should we do with this? Well, our prayer is, God, continue your steadfastness. And then as Christians, what ought we to do? We, we ought to praise God for his steadfast love, for his refuge. And then Paul tells us in Romans 12, here's how we ought to live in light of the steadfast love of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But what? Leave it to the wrath of God. For as it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, that we would live with that kind, not just action, but it would come from truth. The truth would drive our emotions so that we would have spirit-regulated, truth-informed emotions and a will to honor the king in this way. All praise be to God. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm that extols your goodness, your judgments, and your righteousness to all humanity. Lord, may we be short on confession of sin and long on grace with your love abounding because we know our sin and we found refuge in you. We pray that we would be marked by these things and that we would reflect the character and nature of our rescuer and our king who is coming in judgment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.